begin by checking the volume. Is the volume okay? A little bit, little bit higher? A <coughs> little bit higher? A little bit higher still? How's that? Good? Okay. <coughs> I was introduced uh, to Vipassana practice on a retreat, sitting a retreat in Thailand. And after that retreat, it became very important for me to go back and do another Vipassana retreat to continue what I'd started. It took a year to get this, everything to work out so I could go back on retreat. And it was a little bit like a dark night of the soul time for me. It was so important. There's something I had to do. And um, I decided to, I would do it in Burma. And it was hard to get into Burma, hard to get visa to go there and stay for some length of time. And it took me nine months uh, to, to get that visa. And finally, uh, I received a three-month meditation visa from the Burmese embassy in Bangkok. And I left the embassy with my passport stamped for the visa and started skipping down the streets of Bangkok, singing to myself, you can get it if you really want. <laughs> you can get it if you really try. But you gotta try, try and try. <laughs> <laughs> hard to surprise you. <laughs> and um, and I think Bob Marley had something different in mind than I did. So that's my introduction to tonight's topic, which is the parami of resolve. And resolve uh, is a parami, is a quality that um, I like very much because I believe it's one of my strong qualities. I don't feel like I have good abilities to get concentrated or a lot of other things that would help to practice, but the resolve, the determination, stick to it, keep going. It's something I'm very uh, fond of because it supported me so much. So I want to start with um, here with a story, a Zen story. At the beginning of every year, the abbot would meet with the new monks and nuns who had joined the monastery over the preceding year. At the meeting, he would instruct them to pack their bags. He was going to take them on a pilgrimage to the holy sites of Buddhism. Knowing the pilgrimages that Buddhists will take to the places in India, where the Buddha was born, enlightened, first taught, and died, the new monks and nuns couldn't believe their good fortune. And after their first months in the monastery, some of them were bored, some were unsure why they were there, and others were restless. On the day of the departure, all the older monks and nuns of the monastery stood by the gate to send off the abbot 
and the new monastics. Leading the group, the abbot first took them to a hospital. There the monks spent many hours visiting the sick. Then the abbot took the group to an old age home. The new monks, many who were quite young, were amazed at the ravages of old age of some of the residents of the home. The abbot then took the monks and nuns to see a hospice. In the hours there, they spent time with people in all stages of dying, including a long silent vigil with someone recently dead. The abbot then led the group back to the monastery. There, they first visited a monk sick in the monastery infirmary. The new monks were struck by the sparkle of joy which radiated, radiated through the tired eyes of the patient. Then they went on to visit the oldest resident of the monastery, a 96-year-old nun. The new monastics were amazed to see the love and acceptance the toothless, frail, and stooped nun had. Next, the abbot took them to the hospice wing of the monastery. Here they were introduced to a monk who, only days away from his death, radiated a palpable peace that lingered within them for hours after. Finally, the abbot took the monks and nuns to the meditation hall. When they were all seated, he said, you have seen the holy sights. These are the sights that motivated the Buddha to awaken. Once you are awakened, sickness, old age, and death will not trouble you anymore. Friends, develop the paramis and let go. So sickness, old age, and death, what motivated the Buddha. And they're kind of shorthand for all the big existential challenges of our life, all the big psychological, emotional, personal, interpersonal challenges that people have. This world of ours is filled with people suffering. And it breaks my heart to meet people for whom there have been unacceptable things done to them, that have happened to them, and how big an impact it has for their life and for themselves. And to read in the newspapers, or to read your own heart, all that resides there. And I th it's one of the great noble endeavors to come to terms with sickness, old age, and death, to come to terms with this deep suffering that visits so many people, and to, for the world's sake, not just for our sake as individuals, but for the whole world, to really clarify these issues and really work through them and find the peace on the other side, the possibility on the other side. So this is what motivated the Buddha, and the Buddha had resolve. He was resolved that this is what he was going to do. And he resolved to do it against the advice of a lot of other people. It was supposedly against the advice of his parents. It was supposedly against the advice of some of his own spiritual teachers who said, stay with me. Don't go off on your own. 
But to have the resolve, somehow follow the truth, to look for it, to clarify these things, it was something the Buddha had in which we still reap the rewards of. And so we sit here with resolve as well. Maybe we don't call it sickness, age, old age, and death. But each of us is, in de- is engaged in a very noble, wonderful endeavor. And I certainly sit here with great appreciation, reverence, and gratitude for all of you for what you've done here, what you're doing here in this retreat. I like the English word resolve because um, it comes from the, from the root, I guess the Latin root. It means to untie. So that works really well with, in Buddhist practice, the release, the untying of the knots, of the fetters, which we talk about in Buddhism. Also, I like it because the idea of untying or solving, the, sol- the solving part of resolve comes from the word, same word as solution, like a liquid. So it's dissolving back into solution. So it reminds me that um, resolve has a, can have a soft quality, a dissolving quality. But it also has a strong quality. And maybe the English word determination works better for that. And, and these two sides, to resolve, to dissolve, or the, the little axiom, I guess, um, uh, not to be lax, being relaxed. Isn't that great? <laughs> so it's possible to have both, the active and the receptive, the yin and the yang, different times and different ways, these, both these qualities are very important for each of us. And there are times when the determination is really the right way forward. And other times, the dissolving quality of resolve, the receptive quality of letting go, is very important. And I think there's a wonderful play within each of us between this yin and the yang. And really, when that play really kind of works well, you know, and those two qualities can meet within us, just the right balance for who we are, that, you know, just like there's some wonderful kind of culmination, climax can happen, some deeper letting go can happen in that process. So it's important not to be afraid of our strength and our determination, power of determination. And it's important not to overlook our softness and receptivity and to find the right balance for each of us in different times, in different ways. The um, Pali word, the Buddhist word that we translate as resolve is aditana, which uh, adi means like higher or special. And tana part means to stand. So a higher stand, to take take a stand. So sometimes we have to take a really powerful stand. This is where I stand. This is what I'm about. This is the direction my life is directed towards. This is what my life is about. I'm not going to get sidetracked. One of the strong acts of will, or determination, 
taking a stand that the Buddha championed was that's powerful determination it sometimes takes to have not to give in to our defilements, not to give in to our greed or our hate, not to give in, perhaps, to fear. And, you know, if, if, we're, if we're going to be taken over by those things, sometimes it's really good to take a stand. I take that as a really good sign. <laughs> you know, if you get fireworks <laughs> celebrating the Dharma. So take that, you know. So when the Buddha was enlightened, <laughs> the earth quaked. So when it's good thing said, so determination. And um, so to take a stand and not give in sometimes can take a lot of strength and determination. And sometimes we get the idea, at least I've gotten the idea sometimes in some of the Buddhist circles I've been in, that a lot of it's about acceptance. A kind of a passive acceptance, which is a... Acceptance is a beautiful quality. But... Um, its own time and place. Sometimes we take a stand. We don't give in. When um, I was first year as a Buddhist practice, I did Zen practice, where all the practice was done together. And in fact, you were, it was frowned upon that you would practice alone in your room, because then you were like special, doing something different. You were kind of attached. You should just always just, when the, when the schedule said come meditate, you meditate. Otherwise, you shouldn't really meditate. And so we, you know, it was a whole life was, the monastery was, you know, lived together. And then after some years of doing that, I did my first retreat in Thailand. And the abbot said, oh, um, you see way out there at the edge of the monastery, by the, uh, the edge of the rice fields? That's your hut. And that's where you get to practice. And I went out there and practiced, sat and walked. I sat in a little, little cabin, a little one-room kuti on stilts. And right next to it was, a, uh, like, I don't know how long it was, maybe 12 feet long, uh, someone's, um, I guess, kind of like a grave. It was like cement top, you know, with the gravestone and stuff. And all around everywhere else was kind of swampy. So the only place to do walking meditation was on top of the grave. So I was out there on the edge of the monastery doing my practice, and I realized very quickly that this was new for me <laughs> to practice alone, and that how much during Zen practice I had relied on the group support for motivation to keep me going. And now what was being asked of me was to find that discipline and that motivation, that resolve inside myself. It was, you know, I had to kind of find that and wake it up. Here at Spirit Rock, we have something in between that. We don't have the strict, you have to show up for the sitting, you have to be a certain way like we have in Zen monasteries. There's much more permission here, it's much more you know, forgiving, it's much more space, not so strict. But we do, have, we do have a schedule, we do have a group of people we can practice with, not completely alone. 
But I think it's here at Spirit Rock, in this kind of setting here, um, it sometimes takes... Uh, we don't have the support that we have in the Zen monastery to keep showing up, keep showing up. And it does take some inner resolve, determination, to keep hanging in here sometimes. Because it's so easy to just go down for tea, go back to your room for a nap, go for a hike. All of which is appropriate at times and inappropriate at others. And so we're asked here at Spirit Rock, it's kind of like, it's, it's, in some ways it's more challenging here than it is in a Zen monastery because it's up to you much more. You have to find it in yourself. And I would say that when I was a new, new Zen student, I could not do, I could not have done what you are doing on this retreat. So it's, you're already doing great. So resolve. There's the big resolve of awakening, but maybe that's too big. Maybe it's too vague. The Buddha uh, offered four resolves along the path to awakening. Four beautiful resolves. And um, so I want to go through these four. They're the resolve for truth, the resolve for wisdom, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. So there is a resolve for truth, the desire for truth, the motivation for truth, taking a stand on truth being committed to what is true. I think is a very beautiful quality. And it's really essential for anyone doing Vipassana practice. Because Vipassana practice is really dependent on what is true. Being present for what is true. Allowing what is true to show itself. So I want to offer a st- another st- these Zen stories. Two young men joined the monastery around the same time. The first one explained he had come to experience the full power and luminosity of the Dharma. With a warning to be careful what he wished for, the abbot welcomed him him into the community. As soon as he could, the young man raced off towards the meditation hall. He tossed his shoes on the shoe rack, entered the hall, and sat down to meditate. Sitting with great determination and confidence, it was not long before an inner heat and light appeared. Spurred on, the new monk practiced with even greater fervor. The heat and light increased in power and luminosity until, suddenly, the monk burst into flames. Within seconds, all that remained were ashes on his cushion. (laughs) Be careful what you wish for. When the second man came to the monastery, the abbot asked him what he hoped for. The aspirant replied, To see the Dharma in the ordinary events of life 
in the food I eat, in the work I do, and in the faces of my fellow monastics. As with the first man, the abbot welcomed the new monk into the monastery, but there was no warning. Later in the day, when it was time for the monks to meditate, the new monk headed for the meditation hall. Placing his shoes on the shoe rack, he looked down and saw they were not lined up parallel to each other. This in turn helped him to see that he was slightly distracted from the excitement of his first day in the monastery. Letting go of his distraction, he focused his attention to see more carefully what was in front of him. He saw that his shoes were old and worn. Remembering when they were new, reflected on how all things are transient and how quickly they change. Soon, he thought, I will be an old monk in this monastery. Reflecting how precious each moment is, he reached down to straighten out his shoes. Doing so, he saw that if he moved them slightly to the left, there would be an easy space for another pair of shoes to the right of his. Thinking of the, of the other monks who were coming to the meditation hall, he gently pushed his shoes to the side. Happy, the new monk entered the meditation hall. Which of that, those two would you like to be? <laughs> so the second monk could find the truth in the simple details of his life. Can you find the truth in how you put your shoes in the shoe rack? And in the story here, there are layers of truth, layers of understanding that came just by really being paying attention to those shoes, what was going on there. Who could have believed there was so much there in the cubby holes out here? Thomas Merton said, he was asked once what he learned in his years of monastic life. And he said, I learned to open and close doors. And I, t I, I take that statement as being literal. To open and close door. What's significant about opening and closing a door? The truth is not far away. In fact, it's just right here. And the truth at times is really simple. It's so simple, sometimes we can't believe that it's so simple. There must be something profound and powerful and luminous about the Dharma. And if I don't have the power and luminosity of the full Dharma, it's not really it. It doesn't really count. This itch I'm having, that's not really the truth. Boredom can't be it. But there, there's a way, everything that happens, everything that arises and occurs, no matter what it is that arises and occurs, is an arising phenomena. Any arising phenomena is true. And to meet it as true, to meet it as it is, is very, very significant.
to start picking and choosing the truths that you want. Well, the shoes in the shoe rack, well, that's pretty pedestrian. I'm in a hurry to get into the meditation hall where the real truth is going to be discovered, the powerful, profound insight into absolute impermanence, not noticing, of course, that your shoes are old, or whatever. So, so it can be very simple, just this moment as it is, as it appears to you, as it arises, as it happens to arise. A sound occurs. Oh, that's the truth. Someone comes in late and makes a lot of noise. Among other things, it's true. It's the truth. Just that. And to be so present. Or you have a reaction inside. And rather than getting carried away by the action, by the, by the reaction, or repressing it, or denying it, or feeling shame. Oh, look at that. Annoyance arises. Oh, the truth of annoyance. Just that. Real simple. Just this. And it's really significant to keep showing up for what's true. It's powerful. The truth, someone said earlier, Jack, I think, the truth will liberate you. Because one reason is when you keep showing up moment by moment to what's true, you have to confront and meet all the forces inside of you that wants to bear off from what's true, not stay present. And that can be very powerful things, and you have to meet in yourself as you do that. I've known people who have tried to get concentrated, try to get concentrated, trying to get concentrated, and then boom. They realize why they couldn't get concentrated was some significant ethical lapse. They hurt someone. And until somehow they met that and dealt with it, there was an obstacle to being present. So you're there to be present for that truth. It's not the truth of an itch or truth of a bird singing, but it's the truth of a memory, truth of some part of you that Maybe you don't want to look at. The ability to be true and present for an itch, as mundane as it might seem, or how you put, or be true, present for the, carefully for how you put your shoes in the shoe rack, is the very quality of mind and heart that you need then to be present for the more challenging aspects that arise as well. So my, I said earlier that my first years of, Zen, of Buddhist practice was in Zen. And Zen worked pretty well for me in those early years, partly because they didn't give me any instruction. And um, this turned out to be a blessing for me. Also, I, I, was, I'm, I, am, I am naive enough that I just kind of didn't think about it much. I just kind of, they told me what to do, so I did it. And, um, and I was really into it. It was a good thing to do. And so I had a resolve. I, was, I, kept, I kept showing up month after month, year after year, sitting zazen. I just kept showing up. And I showed up to a lot of suffering. 
because I didn't have any instructions of what to do with my suffering, all I knew to do was to be, oh, I didn't even know, I didn't even know, even know to be, I just, I didn't know anything. I just kept showing up. <laughs> and, you know, suffer, suffer, suffer. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was kind of naive. I didn't, I didn't really think it was a problem exactly to suffer. I just, I didn't know enough of Buddhism even. You know, I didn't hardly knew about Buddhism. I just knew to show up. And, um, but if I had given, been given all kinds of instructions, you should note that, why don't you develop some concentration and work around it? Why don't you, you know, do this and that? I would have probably tied myself in knots or, or because of how I, my mind kind of works. And I would have also easily slipped away from it. By not, being, not having any instruction, I just kept showing up for the truth. And the amazing thing that happened to me, which I, would, I was not anticipating, was not intending, and was not on the radar, was slowly I became compassionate. I was doing Zen to get awakened. <laughs> and lo and behold, I became compassionate. And that was really significant, really important for me. How is it this practice you know, we say, I'm meditating. But it's just as, you could just as well say, you're being meditated. You're being worked on. I know it's so easy to take so much personal responsibility for how it's supposed to go. Your responsibility is to keep showing up. Keep being present for what is. And then you allow the truth of the moment to work itself on you. If you keep showing up, keep showing up, keep showing up for this truth, this truth. No need to differentiate between profound and shallow truths. What's important is how you meet whatever the truth that's arising. Just meet that, really meet it, be the present, see it. So the resolve for the truth The second resolve is the resolve for wisdom. And there was this beautiful question this morning in the hall here that differentiated between two kinds of wisdom. The wisdom of, uh, I guess, skillful means and discernment. Then the wisdom of insight. And I think it's important not to separate these two kinds of wisdom because it's the insight that allows you to be discerning. It's the insight that helps you know what is skillful, what's to do. So to be resolved on wisdom and understanding. And I'd like to offer you, because wisdom is meant to be simple. You don't need a PhD in Buddhism to become wise. That I can tell you authoritatively. But um, the, um, here's a simple wisdom question that I think I can take you really far. What takes you away from your ease? 
just that. To be resolved on that question is to, re- is to be resolved on wisdom. What takes you away from your ease? Or a variation is, for what are you willing to sacrifice your ease? And it might be helpful to begin that question, exploration, with really simple things. It could be as simple as feeling some calm, some centeredness, coming out of the hall here before lunch. And then as you walk down the hill, there seems like a lot of people ahead of you on the hill. And there might not be so much food left, or you might not get your, that, that seat that you really love in the, medita- in the dining hall. So if I walk a little bit faster, I can pass all those people on the road and get down there a little earlier. And then you're sacrificing your ease, tightening up a little bit, a little hurrying, a little concerned, a little bit worrying about Oh, I won't look really like a good yogi, going so fast. And so there's all these concerns that we've lost our ease. For what are we losing our ease? And is it worth it? Is it worth sacrificing your ease for a seat, a chair in the dining hall? What's more precious? And here I'm offering you the idea that one of the most precious things you have is your ease. It's really important, significant, it's beautiful, and it helps the world for you to be at ease. So how do you safeguard it? How do you love it? How do you be resolved on it? And there's layers and layers of this. Some of them are very difficult to find our way through. But so for example, coming for interviews, it's quite common for people to say, oh, I've been agitated this last sitting before the interview. Agitated means it's loss of ease. And there are times, maybe not this retreat, but there are times in retreat where some of the most significant work can be around looking at what happens as we get agitated before going into an interview. Why do we sacrifice our ease? For what do we sacrifice our ease in that concern that happens in the interview and how I'm going to be seen, how someone sees me, and all kinds of things. To really look at that. So a wisdom question for you. For what do you sacrifice your ease? And if you ask that question well, perhaps you realize that it's not worth the sacrifice. And you'll come back to your ease. The next uh, resolve is the resolve for generosity. Again, a very beautiful quality. And I take this as shorthand here for resolve for all the good ways of relating to other people. Generous, kind, compassion. It's the resolve to somehow include other people in our practice. And there's a lot of benefits to generosity, which 
we've had, Adrian talked about earlier. Here in this talk, I want to mention that generosity is a significant way of overcoming, of dissolving, of resolving self-preoccupation. It's all about me. What I, what, you know, what's, what's in it for me? My meditation practice, my precious meditation state. Those people don't seem to realize when they come in late and noisy that they're disturbing my meditation session. Those people. That's not very generous. And it's not very helpful to help the process of freedom, of untying, of resolving, to be resolved on resolving. So how can we be generous to people here who come in late? Or even as simple as opening the door for someone as they come into the hall, stepping aside and letting them come in first. It's putting aside a little bit, it's all about me. We're seeing that there's just a little bit of food left in the dining hall and realizing there's people behind you in line. It's not just about me, it's about them too. So there's an infinite number of ways in which generosity, being generous to others, it's not an obligation, but it's a beautiful way of stepping out of self-preoccupation. Free ourselves from me, myself, and mine. There's so much of it <clears throat> for some of us. I don't know about all of you. Some of you might be free, free of it. Have you ever looked at what you think about? and who the main character is, how many of the thoughts are self-referential in nature. Isn't it amazing? Does someone walk next to me and talk to me as much as I talk to myself <laughs> and was as repetitive? I would think that there was something seriously wrong with them. <laughs> I would. I would beg them to stop, I would pay them to stop, I would, you know. And what's most amazing is that, you know, after that person, I get kind of tired after a while. But I can say the same thing to myself 500 times, and it's as interesting as the first time. So some of us need some help. And generosity and caring for others is a wonderful way to do that. So to be resolved on what's generous. We don't want to get too involved on retreats like this, you know, starting to do things for each other. We are kind of being in our bubble here, practice, but especially outside of the retreat, beautiful thing to do. But even here in your heart, let your hearts be generous, a generous heartedness to your fellow practitioners, to the environment, and to yourself. Even being generous to yourself can be a stepping out of self-preoccupation. 
So the last resolve is the resolve for peace. And in, in Buddhism, peace is um, considered to be one of the most sublime or important or wonderful qualities of heart. And the resolve for peace is a resolve of the heart, not a determination of the mind. To resolve, to, to dissolve, to resolve for peace. There's a story of a king who asked, uh, who wanted to have had a contest to see who could paint the most uh, painting, the most beautiful painting that depicted peace. And so all across the land, great painters and minor painters and people presented their paintings to the king. Many of them you know, seemed very peaceful, you know, pastoral pictures, alpine lakes, you know, whatever. And the king just said, no, no, not it, not it. And the ministers and everyone were despairing. You know, we've done everything, now. we've tried everything, and nothing seems to work for you. And then some poor person from the far in the countryside came hobbling to the capital with her painting. And they said, no, 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 that's not, that, that, that's not. Can't do that one. And the ministers looked at it, and we can't show that to the king because it was a painting of a tempestuous waterfall. Violent waterfall. There's not, nothing peaceful about it. But the king was insisting he had, at this point, you know, after all these paintings, I, have to, I need to see another painting. So the ministers didn't know what to do. So they, okay, let's show him this picture. So they hung it up. And the king went, looked at it and went closer and closer, studied the picture. And he said, this is the picture of peace. This is the one who wins the contest. And the ministers, of course, were a little bit confused by this violent picture on the wall. So they went over and looked carefully, too. If you looked really carefully in the painting, there was a little place in the waterfall where the water separated out as it went down. A little opening in the water. And if you looked through that opening, you saw a little ledge in the cliff. And there was a, a little nest with a bird sitting there on her eggs, peacefully. That won the contest. If you're looking for peace by finding peace in the world, it's not real peace. The world's not going to change so much. We all want it to change. But if you want peace, real peace, it's the peace that you have to find, your nest. The peace that you're able to have in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of challenges. This is not an escape 
from the world, but rather a discovery of a different way of being in the world that's not pushed around by the power of the world, the waterfalls, the currents, not pushed around. And there's something to be very significant to be learned in doing mindfulness practice. That mindfulness is not about changing your experience as much as learning how to hold your experience in a new way. Hold the truth in a new way that arises. To learn to receive in awareness, in awareness, whatever is happening without being for or against it, without clinging to it or resisting it, but allowing it to be there, to arise and to be. Knowing, knowing can be independent of what is known. Awareness can be independent of what you're aware of. Often when we're aware of something, it comes a lot, we have this this wonderful magnetic or kind of gravitational force. We cling to it or we lob onto it. Our desires, our fears, our aversions, our sense of self, self-referential, all kinds of stuff. And here what we're trying to do is discover, really to be present for what's true, what's here, to know it. And discover that place where we can just know it. And it's so simple. We just know it. That's all. It doesn't have to be different. It doesn't have to be better. It doesn't have to be worse. It doesn't have to be fixed. You just know it. That's the nest, the, know- the nest of knowing where we sit on our eggs. So how we, how we relate to our experience. There's what's happening and how we relate to it. And a very important area of Vipassana practice is to look at what's happening carefully, to be present for what's true, but also to, to look at how am I relating to what's happening. That question is a safeguard, safeguards your practice. Because if you notice how you relate, you're hopefully less likely to relate in ways that cause suffering. So how do we hold it? How are we present for it? So I have this bell here, little hand bell. Beautiful bell. I've never seen it before, actually. (laughs) Chloe, when you found it for me. Aquili, Aquili. And um, so listen to how beautiful this bell is. You ready for the beautiful sound of the bell? (laughs) My beautiful bell. (laughs) I'm not gonna let anyone have it. Look what happens when I grab it. Now look, when I release it from my, my grip.
what what is what is what beauty comes out of you what beauty resides in this world when you don't grasp when you don't grip when you don't resist it's a little bit it's a little bit ephemeral because as soon as you want to have it what is it as soon as you want to have it for yourself you get this and it gets more beautiful i think more kind of One thing to try to grab the bell, it's another thing to try to grab the notes. Where does the note reside? Is it possible to resist the note, to grab the note? I guess you can put earplugs in. But where does, what's the substance of the note? Where does the note reside? It's not a, it's not a kind of, note is not a substance which you can block like with your hand or grab onto. Awareness is a lot like the note. Awareness kind of doesn't have a place, a location, it's not a substance. Can't quite grab awareness, can't quite push it away. To be aware. And to be aware without being in relationship, active relationship with what is known. So if I may, if I have your attention just a few little bit little bit more. Um, I think it might be useful to differentiate provisionally, it's not really a Buddhist thing, between two kinds of self the relational self and the non-relational self. Or the relational way of being in the world in a non-relational way. And I gave a talk on this some months ago and there was a person who became really angry with me. So be careful. <laughs> because it seems so, you know, the non-relational seems so non-relational. It seems so cold or world-denying. Much of what Buddhism is about is about supporting and enhancing and developing a healthy relational self, helpful relationships with the world. Most of Buddhism is what it's about. But many people, that's all they know. And so what they know, how they know themselves and how they know what they want from life is by being in relationship. Someone likes me, someone doesn't like me. I get something from someone. I compare myself to this person, that person in relationship to my work, to my home, to my bank account, to my health. There's some, you know, our sense of happiness and well-being is very much tied to things we're relating to. And the difficulty with that is as long as we're relating to these things of the world, it can be tricky because they shift around. They change, they dissolve, they disappear, they And if our sense of who we are as a person is only relational, how we are in relationship to people, and the people shift and change, then our sense of self is fragile. There's also the non-relational self, that sense of presence, of being, way of being at peace, 
fulfilled, happy, <clears throat> safe, which doesn't require being in relationship to anything. And in fact, as long as we're in relationship to things, active relationship, relating to things, it takes effort and energy. Even be, sometimes it's beautiful effort, beautiful energy. It's not to be dismissed as being unimportant. But it always takes energy. And you can't really f- experience full peace as long as we're actively in relationship. Full peace is found when the mind, the heart, can rest in itself without needing to be in relationship, without being defined by anything, without using something to define it, to build it up, to defend itself, just just there. So that awareness, the mind, the aware mind, the awareness, the mind that's aware, can be aware without it being tied to things being a certain way. Just resting in itself, awareness resting in itself. Aware, with awareness independent of what is known. So I'll end with another story. And uh, if you allow me, I'll make this story about you. Imagine that you were born in a world where humans lived in the ocean. Humans were born swimming. So as soon as they were born, they started swimming. And they swam, and you swam, and you swam, and swam. That's all you knew was swimming. Didn't think about it much. Swam. You notice that some people were better swimmers than you, and some people, you were better swimmers than other people. Sometimes you felt good, sometimes bad. You came into beautiful tropical waters where so much pleasure, nice. You're still swimming all the time, swimming, swimming. You came into great big swells, ocean waves, maybe frightening at first. Then after a while, you learned how to surf. But you're still swimming, swimming, swimming. And after a while, you got tired of swimming. It would be nice. Is there, is there anything else? And someone said, oh, yes. If you swim really far to the west, there's an island there you can get up on. And rest, stop swimming. <clears throat> so you swim to the west for a long time. Nothing seems to be there. And someone said, oh, no, no. You have to swim to the south. <clears throat> and you swim for a <clears throat> really long time. No, no, no. It's to the north. No, it's to the east. And along the way, you meet people who say, <clears throat> Oh, 
highest you can attain is learning how to really surf in the ups and downs of the waves. The, pe- the, the most attained people, the people who surf the best, but they're still swimming. Or the best thing you can do is become one with the ocean, but you're still swimming. Swimming and swimming. And then one day <clears throat> you meet a wise old person who looks at you with a twinkle. He says, oh, you know, all you have to do is to flip over and you can float. Your minds have been busy for a long time. Your minds have been swimming and swimming from the day you were born. Right here, in this beautiful ocean of awareness, you can flip over and float and find your peace. Your peace is right here. May you be resolved on peace. Thank you very much. Enjoy your practice here today, tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.